Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are talking about The Festival by H.P. Lovecraft. This is a story that uh, originally appeared in Weird Tales in 1925. And this is the first story we're covering from our latest Patreon vote. Normally, we release these in descending order, but this story came in fourth. It, it just barely made the cut by one vote. But we're doing it first because it's kind of a Christmas story and... It's December when we're releasing it. So, uh, yeah, it just seemed like the right time to do this one. Yeah, the the stories that came in ahead of the festival, and we're going to get to those then after the holidays. Uh, those stories are The Golden Doom by Lord Dunsany, which will be our very first play, which is very exciting. And we're also going to cover the obscure medical history of the 20th century as revealed by The Lamb's Head Pocket Guide. It's a mouthful of a title there. Uh, and this is by Stephen Chapman. And this is one that was also nominated by one of our patrons. That's also going to actually be breaking the format mold for us, as it's not really a a narrative. It's actually kind of an encyclopedia entry and a sort of made-up encyclopedia, I guess. But that's going to be a lot of fun, too. And then we will also have another traditional narrative story, and we're going to get a dose of the 19th century as well with The Ebony Frame by Edith Nesbitt. That's a story that I'm really excited to cover. Yeah, me too. I really can't wait to read The Ebony Frame by uh, E. Nesbitt, as she's also known. She's a great writer, known for a lot of children's books, but also wrote uh, some other strange tales. I I really can't wait also to get to this encyclopedia entry. I love odd and obscure things kind of coming from another another esoteric pocket universe of of a strange kind guess we should probably talk about what didn't make the cut this time. And it, it's heartbreaking to see some of these great stories not just not make it. Uh, some of the stories that missed this time were the very next story in the Yellow King collection by Robert W. Chambers. That's The the Mask. Uh, there's also a great story by M.R. James, The Rose Garden, that didn't make it. Uh, both of these missed it actually only by one vote, right? The festival beat both of them by just one vote. Uh, they'll be back on the next ballot, though. But I think with all of that said, I think we should turn our attention to the story at hand to the festival. And this really is, as we said at the top of the show, uh, something akin to anyway, it's maybe Lovecraft's attempt at a weird fiction version of a traditional New England Christmas. And Brandon, it's your turn to do the recap. So why don't you walk us through this one? The festival opens with an epigraph from Lactantius. It's in Latin, and I'm going to try to read it just kind of to irritate Glenn, I think, <laughs> a little bit more than anything. Uh, and, and this is the epigraph. Efficient daemonis utque non sunt sic tamen quasi sint cospicienda homnibus exhibient. That was terrible, and Glenn, uh, hopefully you'll jump in and correct some of those pronunciations, but I do want to note that in the notes in the back of the Penguin Classics uh, edition of The Call of Cthulhu and Other Weird Tales, where uh, I'm reading this story, uh, the S.T. Joshi tells us that Lovecraft got this epigraph from a citation in a Cotton Mather book called Magnalia Christi Americana, and a translation is offered in the notes as well, which goes... Devils so work that things which are not appear to men as if they were real. And this is, uh, this is what Lovecraft uses to open his story, The Festival. Yeah, your Latin pronunciation was not terrible, Brandon. I've actually heard students in Latin class do way worse than that. I think the big thing was, you know, all C's in Latin are hard C's, uh, though you were doing a little bit of church Latin there where some of them were pronounced like a like a cha, and that's totally fine. <laughs> no, it was not bad. And this this text is actually from late antiquity, which is the, the period that I specialize in. Uh, the person who wrote these words, Lactantius, is important today because he wrote a work of Christian theology that we would call in English the Divine Institutes which is a kind of confusing title. Uh, Institutes here really means something like education or instruction. So it's really like the divine education or the divine instruction. And that's basically what that book is. It's an explanation of Christian theology, Christian cosmology. It's also maybe even more so. It's actually also a, a refutation of other theologies and other cosmologies, which is really the line that we get here. I'd probably translate this differently than the the translator that we get here in the, the Penguin Classics edition. I would probably render this as supernatural beings cause things that don't exist to appear to people as if they do exist, is how I would render that. And what Lactantius is talking about here are the gods of the ancient Mediterranean religions. People know these, you know, Zeus and Apollo, Athena, and so on. And Lactantius believes that these gods are actually real, but they're just not 
actually gods. There's there's some other type of supernatural being. They're, they're supernatural deceivers. Uh, this is actually something that we're going to see Gene Wolfe take up eventually as well. Uh, we'll see some of that in a few years over on that show, I think. But here, Lovecraft is really just using this epigraph to, to let us know that we are in for some kind of an illusion and possibly for supernatural beings who are deceivers. But it, it's a pretty good epigraph. It's a pretty good way to start this story. Yeah, and I think we'll find that it does have some bearing on the story. And I think your translation will make how this comes to bear on the story a lot more clear than the one we get in the notes in the back of the book. Well, the narrative opens with our narrator, who's remain who remains unnamed in the story, uh, far from home, making his way to the ancient town of Kingsport. Uh, and Lovecraft uses the term ancient here to really just mean kind of pre-American settlement, as we'll find out. The, the narrator's ancestors were there uh, prior to the settling of America. And the, na- the narrator is walking at twilight, and he's walking through new fallen snow. And uh, Lovecraft does quite a bit to set the scene for us on kind of a nice snowy uh, Christmas time sort of evening. It is Yuletide. Uh, also known as Christmas to many. And the narrator declares here that men know in their heads that Christmas is older than Bethlehem and Babylon, older than Memphis and mankind. The narrator is coming to Kingsport, which is also an ancient sea town, because they keep festival here. And they've done this for a long time, though the festival at different points in history has been forbidden, and now it's sort of like forgotten or unknown. The narrator is related to the old people of Kingsport, as I said, and he's been called on by his father to participate in this year's festival. And and, and this kind of familiar relation in this story doesn't necessarily play out in a in a sort of rational genealogical sort of way. It's more like this uh, kinship connection that we see that the narrator is caught up in. It, it might not be his father directly, but it, what's important is that the narrator is a son of the original inhabitants of this place called, this place now called Kingsport. The narrator says that his were an old people and were old even when this land was settled 300 years before. And they were strange because they had come as dark, furtive folk from opiate southern gardens of orchids and spoke in another tongue before they learnt the tongue of the blue-eyed fishers. And now they were scattered and shared only the rituals of mysteries that none living could understand. So Lovecraft is setting up kind of a weird alternate deep history that this narrator is preparing to go engage with. Now at this point, Lovecraft spends a little time describing the town of Kingsport, it's very old, as we've pointed out, uh, as I've pointed out already, for, uh, you know, like 42 times in the recap, but <laughs> it's uh, fewer times than Lovecraft has pointed it out in the first five paragraphs of the story. And this town is full of crooked streets and old colonial homes and graveyards and all of these sort of uh, spooky images that are scattered about in a disorganized manner throughout the town. And in the graveyard, Lovecraft writes that gravestones stuck ghoulishly through the snow like the decayed fingernails of a gigantic corpse. I think this image is really great and haunting. And the wind blowing along the roads carries the sounds of a creaking gibbet. And the narrator recalls that four of his ancestors were hung for witchcraft in 1692. So we're just getting a sense that maybe this festival is not going to be done by good Christian folk on a a Christmas day or Christmas Eve. I think the opening here to the festival is just epic. I mean, I, I like the just the opening line itself, the opening paragraph as well. But I think even just these first 500 words, really about two and a half pages here in this Penguin Classics version that we're looking at, just do so much work. But I want to focus actually really on that the, the first line here, which is this. I was far from home and the spell of the eastern sea was upon me. In the twilight, I heard it pounding on the rocks, and I knew it lay just over the hill where the twisting willows writhed against the clearing sky in the first stars of evening. I guess technically that was actually the first two lines, but I just got carried away because it's beautiful. I mean, I find it just so evocative. And these lines, they really just set the tone. They set the mood of the piece immediately, right? Just two lines. It's all it takes. But I think especially with this use of the word spell here, 
And we do also get this amazing sense of deep time, as you've pointed out, Brandon, how frequently he uses the word ancient, how frequently he uses the word old here. And the narrator uses some strange language to talk about his ancestry and his, I guess, biological or hereditary providence as well, right? He says he's got this summons from his father's, right? It's not necessarily, as you said, like his actual father or, you know, his actual parents. It's it's fathers in the sense of ancestors. And then there's this ancient town. There's this assertion that Christmas is really just the most recent form of a midwinter holiday that is older than ancient Egyptian civilization and indeed even older than human beings themselves, right? So huge, crazy sense of deep time there. But then we also get this bit of history about the narrator's community that you you mentioned, Brandon, which is uh, really, this is really a big speculative element to the story, right? He says that his people are an old people, that they were old even when the first European settlers arrived here in New England. And you know, we might be thinking Native Americans there, but I think Lovecraft might have something else in mind. We'll we'll keep track of that as we go. That's going to be one of our discussion points as well. But it is hard not to feel small and insignificant in the face of this sense of deep time. And I think Lovecraft has really just nailed his mood here. And he's combined this with the sea itself as a kind of force, right? He says it's the spell of the sea and it's pounding and it's secretive. And then we have this line actually about the secretive immemorial sea out of which the people had come in the elder time, a line that's not explained right now, but does maybe call into question whether we're really talking about Native Americans here. And all of this just creates a mysteriousness and a, a creepiness on a nice wintry evening at Christmas time in New England. I, I, this is just a really a masterful uh, setup here to a story. Yeah, I agree. I think the opening of the story is the strongest part of the story. And, and I'm glad you pointed out the bit about the ancestors kind of coming out of the sea or coming uh, from the sea in some way, because we know that Lovecraft has, uh, in in other works, written about people who have literally come from the sea to worship, you know, Dagon or Cthulhu or something like that. And I'm sure we'll talk about in the discussion whether or not our narrator's ancestors are actually human or not, even at all. Well, as I said, the and, and Glenn, as you pointed out, the, the narrator is kind of enwrapped in, in this sense of deep time. And, and, that's point, and that's clear to us by the way he hears kind of the, the gibbet on the wind that I pointed out and thinks about his ancestors. But apart from that sound, that creaking gibbet in the wind, there are really not too many other sounds that would indicate a lively village is preparing for a festival. Really, there's not really any other sounds at all. You kind of have that quiet that comes with a snowfall in the evening. Everything, the people, the homes, the paths that the narrator is walking on is just hushed and quiet. And so the narrator continues on his way towards his ancestor's home, and he and and Lovecraft gives us a little bit of kind of walking geography here. The narrator travels through Back Street and to the Circle Court to where Green Lane leads off behind the Market House. The narrator had hoped to take a trolley through the town uh, because he had heard that the trolley runs in Kingsport, that you can just get around town on the trolley. And he heard this in Arkham, where he's from. But he doesn't see any trolley wires overhead, and he doesn't see any trolley tracks in the ground at all. He's kind of traveled into this odd space as well, it seems, that isn't quite the Kingsport that other people know. The narrator comes upon his ancestor's home, which we're told was built before 1650. Though the snow was falling and has been for a little while, he notices that there aren't any other footprints in the snow anywhere. He's he's literally the only person outside making tracks on the ground. He also notices that the lights are inside the house, and so he uses the iron knocker on the door to alert the family inside the house to his presence, his, his ancestors. The narrator is scared at this point because the door to the house opens without him hearing any footfalls or footsteps coming from inside the house. But his fears are quickly allayed because an old man wearing slippers appears at the door and he's the one who's opened it. So you wouldn't hear any footsteps if somebody's wearing slippers <laughs> in the house. And we learn a little bit about the appearance of the old man beside the fact that he's kind of dressed in winter pajamas. Uh, the old man has this bland face and he also can't 
speak. And and the way he communicates then is by writing on a wax tablet. And so he writes kind of a welcome uh, message to the narrator uh, and invites him into the home. And as the narrator gets into the home, he immediately feels the effects of there not being a fire burning in the house anywhere. And, and the house is just damp and cold. And the narrator is really uncomfortable. And he feels this fear surge again. And so he fixes his look uh, upon the old man, I guess trying to get an anchor into uh, the situation that he's in. But the old man's bland face terrifies the narrator even more than before. And it seems to the narrator as though the old man is wearing a, a kind of a mask of some sort rather than having a real face. And I think the old man senses the terror of the narrator, of his ancestor at this point, and he just tells him to, to kind of hang tight until it's time to prepare for the festival. While the narrator is waiting, he, he looks over a small selection of books that are kind of sitting out on the table in the living room, or the parlor, I guess, as as is probably more an appropriate time appropriate title for the room that he's in. And these are the books that are available for the narrator to read. There is Morister's Wild Marvels of Science, the terrible Sadducismus Triumphatus of Joseph Glanville, published in 1681. The shocking Daemonolatriae of Remigius, printed in 1595 in Lyon. And worst of all, the unmentionable Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Al-Hazred in Oes Wormius's forbidden Latin translation. And of course, you know, when you find a copy of the Necronomicon sitting around in a language that you can read, you, you've got to pick it up and read it a little, which is exactly what the narrator does. And he loses track of time as a result. And he experiences the typical negative side effects of reading the Necronomicon. And, and eventually the old man just comes and gets him uh, because it's time to go to the festival. Right. This story went off the rails pretty quickly. Basically, as soon as Lovecraft is done with the setup and describing the snowy evening, all of which was beautiful. He just goes straight into the weird and the creepy uh, immediately without any real buildup. I mean, first off, you know, pro tip, right? If someone looks like they're wearing a mask, just go, right? Especially if they won't speak to you, but are only going to write things down. Just just get out of there. You can, you can thank me for that advice later, right? You just need to turn around. I don't care how snowy and cold it is. There's no good that's going to come of that. But I did like this scene. And I, I really felt like the description of the the bland face that might be a mask uh, reminded me a lot, actually, of Odo from Deep Space Nine, right? Who's always trying to make a, a humanoid face but can't quite get any actual, like, definition down. And it is actually kind of a terrifying face. Like, if you're not what like, if you just encountered Rene Aubergenois in that makeup, like in the grocery store, you'd, <laughs> you'd freak out, right? We don't freak out because we're watching a TV show and we like him as a character, but otherwise it's actually a really terrifying effect. But I do think this is actually a pretty great scene as the, the narrator is really afraid of what is happening here. He is actually creeped out and he just doesn't leave because he feels compelled to be here in order to celebrate festival. And it is possible that the compulsion that he feels is not just actually a sense of family obligation, but is actually something a little more uh, numinous, something a little more supernatural or, or mystical, perhaps. And we'll, we'll talk about that in the discussion. But of course, the big thing that's going on here, right, is that we get the classic Lovecraft move of listing a bunch of books, right? Classic, classic narrative technique of Lovecraft <laughs> right. here. Bunch of books. Uh, two of these are real. Uh, the Sadochismus Triumphatus by Glanville is a 17th century book about witchcraft. And then the book by uh, Remigius, or Remigius, if you will, on the characteristics of demons from the 16th century. Those are our real books. But the other two books are, are made up, uh, but actually only one of them by Lovecraft. Uh, Moriester's Marvels of Science is an invention of the writer Ambrose Bierce, whom I'm certain that we will cover on the show at some point. In fact, I'm a little surprised we haven't done that yet. 
But then, right, of course, there's the big one here. It's the Necronomicon. And from our perspective here on the show, it's finally here, right? This is actually our first encounter with Lovecraft's most famous invention, the Necronomicon. And I'm, I'm glad that we're getting it just before the end of our first year on the air. So the absolute last story that we're doing this year. And we got just our first tease of a mention of the Necronomicon. But of course, a lot of the things that he says about the Necronomicon here are going to come back in, in some of the more uh, important, some of the more significant uh, works, you know, so the, the major works of Lovecraft as well. And it's great to see those here in what amounts to a fairly early story. Right, absolutely. And for those listeners who are faint to fart, we will be reading from the Necronomicon at the at the end of this story. Uh, I'll be reading the passage that, uh, you know, just has this main character sort of lose his mind a little bit. So if you're terrified of the Necronomicon, maybe, uh, maybe pause before we get to the end <laughs> <laughs> to protect your own sanity, of course. Right, but the this this interaction with the old man, this is like so typical of how Lovecraft writes character interactions, which is to say he doesn't really write them at all. It's just somebody like experiencing these these uh I don't know, encounters with other people and then there's not just a lot there's just not a lot of uh action that takes place as a result. I mean, this this old man is sort of just a real prop of the festival, as we'll see in the story, uh, and doesn't really do anything. And, and it just allows Lovecraft to give the character time to wait. But if you're writing a story and you've written a scene where your character is waiting for a long time, uh, maybe maybe try to find a way to rewrite the scene. You know, action really moves a plot forward. And uh this encounter with Lovecraft's Strange Library is interesting, um, but it does kind of stall the story just a little bit in this middle section. Yeah, I think from Lovecraft's perspective, though, this is the story, right? I mean, the the books actually get more attention than the creepy maybe wearing a mask guy does at this point. And so I think the action sequences such as they are, are really just to try to link together a bunch of set pieces that Lovecraft has in mind. This this story in particular, I think, is really about setting and about mood and about really world building. And a lot of this type of writing that he's doing here is maybe actually more appropriate to a role-playing game manual, which is a topic that we will uh, be discussing on the show in a, in a few months. So we'll have that to, to look forward to. But uh, uh, Brandon, maybe it's time to get back to the plot such as it is. So what happens next? Yes, indeed. Well, the, the two gentlemen, the narrator and the old man leave the house, along with the woman who's in the house, kind of an ancient uh, spinster, but also spinner of fabric herself. And they leave the house and follow the crooked streets up to the town's ancient church. And as they pass through the town, as they move through the town, people in cloaks also leave their homes and and join this kind of dark promenade as it goes up to the church. And and the crowd eventually does make it to the church through some more great haunting imagery uh, that's on display here. But the church is not at all what it appears to be. It, it, it's somehow transformed in the narrator's mind into to a kind of dark temple. And there's a trap door between the two pulpits in the church that are leading downward into a kind of hidden basement, really a, a temple path. And, and the crowd... It disappears down this ancient spiral staircase into a cave that leads into the mountain that is behind Kingsport. And the narrator is terrified, thinking about how the town is so aged and maggoty with subterraneous evil. This is kind of a strange phrase, but it, it's super effective. I love the way Lovecraft uh, has, has written this description. And now the group is basically on the shores of an underground river as they followed this this dark path and they're preparing for the ritual of the festival in the background the narrator hears a feeble flute being played by a shadowy figure and the whole town has formed a semicircle around this blazing pillar and you know as we've been waiting for. They are now prepared to perform the Yule Rite, the primal rite of the solstice and of of the solstice and of spring's promise beyond the snows, the rite of fire and evergreen, light and music. 
And the most frightening thing among the terrors witnessed underground by the narrator is this flaming column that is erupting uh, from the, the sort of vegetable offerings that are being thrown into it and coating the nitrous stone above with a nasty, venomous verdigris. Uh, just a great, great sort of image. And, and that's really a lot of what we get at the festival. They're just sort of throwing uh, vegetables onto this kind of flaming pillar. Yeah, I've got to stop us here so we can admire what I think is surely the best mash of English words of all time. It's another one of these just real thick, real evocative description that Lovecraft gives us here. He writes... Vast fungus shore litten by a belching column of sick greenish flame and washed by a wide oily river that flowed from abysses frightful and unsuspected to join the blackest gulfs of immemorial ocean. I mean, the imagery of this is absolutely fantastic, but so also is the sound, right? It just sounds sick and disgusting. Uh, the, the the sound of the words is doing what the image of the words is supposed to do as well. It's, it's really excellent. And even though we were just kind of bashing on Lovecraft for not having a real place, plot in this story, and I think that's a fair criticism. The sentences here, the descriptions are are just magnificent, right? This is a brilliant bit of just pure descriptive writing. The whole story is, I think. I I couldn't agree with you more. I really think that this is one of Lovecraft's like best straight up just settings. Uh, You feel everything that the narrator goes through in this town and everything that's going on. This, This story is a real masterpiece of setting and atmosphere and description. Uh, and, and I really just kind of enjoyed living in this world for, you know, the 15 or so pages that the that the story takes place over. Well, while we're at pause and are admiring the language, I want to talk a little bit about what was going on uh, before we got down here into this abyss, what was going on up in the, the churchyard and the church. I mean, I love the description of the, the churchyard as they go into it. It's, it's really eerie, really spooky. But I think actually what I appreciate about it most about the description from this scene from a writing craft perspective is the emphasis on words that make us think of snakes while he's... Uh, describing the people processing into and through the church, right? We get slither, uh, serpentine, slipping, oozed, swarming, sinuous, tail, right? All of these words in about uh, one paragraph to describe the, you know, really being used as largely as verbs here uh, for things that people are doing, that this, this crowd of people is doing. And this is so effective here as well at suggesting, I think, that these people might not actually be human. Uh, and even out, even and even without the other things that are actually going on here, right? Like the, the fires on the gravestones and the sense that these people aren't really walking and maybe don't actually have faces. Uh, just this language, I think, suggests that something is not right with them. And again, it's just brilliant wordsmithing. It's brilliant use of vocabulary here. Right. And it just naturally evokes the sort of sense of evil that the narrator feels surrounded by. Well, at this point in the story, the sacrifice part of the ritual seems to have taken place, and and it's moving on to the next stage. And the narrator looks to the man who brought him down into this underground river, this underground evil temple. And the old man is holding the Necronomicon above his head, and he signals to the flute player who changes the tune, which prompts first a feeling of horror in the narrator, but soon... The horror just continues to grow as a small parade of hideous winged hybrid creatures march out of some kind of cavern into the big cave. We get a description of these creatures that I'm going to read because it's kind of great and crazy. Uh, The creatures were not quite crows, nor moles, nor buzzards, nor ants, nor vampire bats nor decomposed human beings, but they're instead some combination of all of these things. I, I don't know if you can kind of create this image in your head, but uh, it's, kind of, it's kind of image by negation, and it's a cool technique, and it's hard to imagine what these things could even be, but what the, what the animals and decomposed human evoke is just something so hideous and terrifying uh, that I think anybody would feel horror if they saw something like that marching into a cave, especially as they are kind of well-trained and domesticated creatures. The narrator gets the sense that he is supposed to get on one of these creatures because a lot of other people have started getting onto them and ride the creature uh, along into the next stage of the ritual with the rest of the crowd. But He's refusing to do this, even at the prompting of the old man. 
And the old man at this point tries to explain himself to the narrator, but he can't talk. So he writes on his tablet that he is the true deputy of the narrator's ancestors. And it was he who founded this form of Yule worship. To offer more proof, as if the narrator needed it, the old man pulls out a seal ring and a watch from his robes that display the family arms. And this is really good enough proof for the narrator that that, that this, this person is his ancestor. But it's terrible proof because the narrator knows that these objects have been buried in 1698 with his great-great-great-etc-grandfather. And at this point, the old man draws back his hood to show his waxen face. But one of the last animals is, is kind of trying to get into the parade that everybody else is in. And it's getting away. And the old man needs to get on one of these animals to continue his place in the, in the festival in the right. And he kind of jostles around a little bit. And his mask is dislodged. And the, the kind of hideous reality of his true face is revealed and this terrifies the narrator so much that he jumps into the black river right so earlier i was really encouraging the narrator to just nope out of here like immediately and i'm glad now that he's finally said yeah this is pretty terrifying i should get out but i think that this is too much too late <laughs> that this is a kind of an overreaction that really defeats the the purpose here uh, but this is a maybe but maybe this is a fairly classic lovecraftian trope here as well where the horror is just too much for the narrator i think i like this better when lovecraft deploys it as just kind of a fade to black rather than this kind of action that struck me as silly as I was reading it. I had to read it a few times to make sure I was really getting it because just the image that I had in my mind was kind of comical and I don't think that it's meant to. So I think a fade to black would have been the better better choice here. Yeah, I think so too. But Lovecraft goes on and tries to give the reader maybe an alternate tale of what could have happened to the narrator. And the narrator awakes in the hospital where the doctors tell him that they found him half frozen in Kingsport Harbor at dawn. And they tell him that he slipped off the cliffs into the water the night before. He took the wrong path into Kingsport and ended up just, you know, pretty much toast. Uh, And he was lucky he was found even alive. And from his window in the hospital, the narrator can see that the town of Kingsport is very different than what he remembers and far more modern. You know, for instance, the trolley's running and the wire and tracks are present. And only one out of every like three or four houses is really uh, an old colonial built before the 1650s. The narrator, though, refuses to back down from his from insisting that his experience of the previous night actually happened and that Kingsport is this old, decrepit, you know, graveyard town full of old people with wax faces. So he gets sent to St. Mary's in Arkham where the doctors allow him uh, a copy of the Necronomicon, which at this point seems like maybe it's not so dangerous a book if you can just get it from Miskatonic University for a mental patient. Um, but the narrator is diagnosed with psychosis, and it, the story ends with a passage from the Necronomicon that is meant to lend credence to the narrator's tale. And I'm going to read this passage as promised. Again, uh, if you if you feel like your sanity is at stake, now's the time to back out of this part of the podcast. The nethermost caverns, wrote the Mad Arab, are not for the fathoming of eyes that see, for their marvels are strange and terrific. Cursed the ground where dead thoughts live new and oddly bodied and evil the mind that is held by no head. Wisely did Ibn Shakabau say, The happy is the tomb where no wizard hath lain, and happy is the town at night whose wizards are all ashes. For it is of old rumor that the soul of the devil-bought hastes not from his charnel clay, but fats and instructs the very worm that gnaws, till out of corruption horrid life springs, and the dull scavengers of earth wax crafty to vex it, and swell monstrous to plague it. Great holes are secretly digged, where earth's pores ought to suffice. The things have learnt to walk, that ought to crawl. 
And this is the end of the story. Yeah, this bit of the Necronomicon is pretty awesome as well. I mean, first of all, I mean, it does sound like madness, but actually these are all things that we've seen in this story. And, and Lovecraft is really also doubling down here on some of the vocabulary that he's used earlier, right? So I, I pointed out all of the uh, words that we got that make us think of snakes. And that's actually what we end with here in the Necronomicon is things have learned to walk that ought to crawl and we even get right the this idea of the, the very worm that gnaws and, and worms being fattened up here as well so lovecraft is really even in this quotation from the necronomicon this artifact within the story employing this language that is going to apply to whoever these people in kingsport actually are and make us wonder if they actually are people at all and if we're meant to take the narrator's narrative as true, then certainly this passage is extremely meaningful in confirming the previous uh, facts of the story we just got. Right. And that is really the first question that I've got for the discussion is, did this incident really happen? Or was this all just a hallucination or some kind of you know, fever dream, some kind of coma dream following this wintry accident? What is your sense of this, Brandon? Did this really happen? I think it really happened. Uh, the sense I get from the story, and I think what Lovecraft is trying to do is say that like these are the true keepers of the Yule ritual that keeps all the seasons in order and appeases the evil Christmas gods or Yule gods or whatever's going on here. And that something about the narrator's ancestry has called him to this town, and he's entered just a strange version of the town where the the dead walk at night and you get the sense of the the town being hushed and quiet and i think it's because uh, that the narrator is just in a very odd version of reality he kind of slips into a a different place in time that preserves this ancient and and dark tradition um and he's allowed to leave and the the reason, the real kind of textual reason why I think this really happened is there's no other reason why the narrator would have gone to Kingsport. And so you have to look at like kind of the first cause of the story and see if there's any other explanation for that. And I don't think there is. And so either the whole narrative is made up from the, from the get-go that there's nothing that the narrator was doing. He was just kind of a hobo wandering around and came up with this narrative to get uh, a hospital bed and, and a hot meal, or he was kind of called to Kingsport and this happened and, uh, you know, he couldn't deal with the reality behind reality. And so he, he uh, escaped through the river. Yeah, I think in a Lovecraft story, I think probably in most of the, the stories from the, the Weird Tales Big Three that we're, we're going to read, if there's a question of, did this incident really happen or not? The answer is almost always going to be yes, where I think if we're asking that question on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, uh, it might be a little more up in the air. In fact, might might lean heavily towards no, actually, rather than yes. But I think the idea here is always going to be, I think the answer here for, for Lovecraft is almost always going to be yes. But it does bring up other questions then, like why is the town look different for him when he shows up if it's not just some dream that he had? And why does the person he interacts with the most here during the festival have his ancestors watch and so on? How, how, how do you answer those questions? Well, I read the fact that the ancestor has his uh, has the watch and the ring seal as proof is that like the, the dead are walking. This is like a spirit realm that the narrator has entered into. And if we want to rely on the epigraph here, um, it could be an illusion, but just because it's an illusion, it could be that everything that's taken place is an illusion uh, on some level. But that also doesn't mean that it's not real, I think, in the Lovecraft story, that there's a certain reality behind reality and that his ancestor here is the original ancestor and he's wearing this mask to hide his kind of like either corpse face or his true nature. And I think there are just layers of reality that are kind of slowly get stripped away and revealed and brought back into reality as the narrator is walking to town. You can think about the sound of the gibbet as a kind of, I don't know, bell ringing that causes the narrator to be in a different reality, that kind of signal sound that like he's not in Kansas anymore. And uh, I think that that's sort of what's going on here is he's kind of 
moving through time in a, in a strange way and that the illusion, the things that exist that are the result of the, the devils doing mischief here is part of what causes the narrator's sort of insanity or psychosis by the end of the story is that he doesn't know which real is real anymore. And uh, the, the in- inability to to make sense of that is uh, causes him to kind of go mad. So that's what I think is going on. Just your standard pulling back of reality to reveal the truth behind it. And something about this character going to Kingsport at this time, the kind of call of blood from the past allows him to experience uh, the real Kingsport for this ritual. Yeah, I think that's right. One of the times that I read this story in, in preparation for this episode, I, I was really convinced that he was time traveling somehow, that the, the, the summons uh, to him uh, in the, the 1920s actually came from the past and that as he got to Kingsport, he was traveling back in time somehow. And that's why it looked differently. But I don't think that that's supported in the text. I think rather what is supported in the text is something like what you're suggesting, where there is something that is maybe kind of an an illusion, a kind of a, a, a vision, but he's not, you know, time traveling, but he is seeing this town as it was in, you know, I don't know, the late seventeenth century, I suppose. But I, but I think that the Necronomicon tells us exactly what's actually going on here, where we get the line, cursed the ground, where dead thoughts live new and oddly bodied, and evil the mind that is held by no head. Right? Of course we certainly see that these people have no heads, but they have minds nonetheless. And and I guess that these are the wizards that this passage of the Necronomicon is talking about and that they've done something here where even though they're dead, their thoughts are living anew and that the narrator is perceiving their own visions or their own dreams somehow and that the reason presumably that this is working on him and that no one else seems to have experienced this, no one else seems to have suddenly like been waiting for the trolley to discover there's no trolley and there never has been and that there's not some newspaper article about this is that it's happened only to him because there is something important about his biological relationship with these dead wizards right that's exactly uh what i think is going on here (laughs) okay well let's drill down a little bit deeper than on who are the people at the festival i think we have established that they're they're wizards in some sense but are they actually humans, right? Why don't they have heads? Why don't they leave footprints? Uh, what's going on here? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I'm not sure the text really offers us any uh, concrete answers about who or what these people are, apart from them being these sort of ancient wizards and these ancient ritual keepers. Certainly in this vision of the old town, you have the church being a, a Christian church in some way, and that it was built on top of a path to a sacred and evil sort of temple at some point in history, and that this group of people or things have been around for a really, really long time. Um, and if the Yule ritual, the Yule tide, is older than mankind itself, and the old man writes that he claims to be the the person who created this ritual, then I think we have to say that they're not humans uh, and that they could just be a cult of old ones on some level. And certainly the creatures they keep would indicate that, you know, there's something very strange going on here. I don't think they're, you know, in the Wolfian sense, doing like uh, medical experience to create animal hybrids. I think these are just <laughs> meant to indicate... what. One, it's just kind of a great sort of Bashian vision of just a just a chaotic uh, hellscape of a kind. But two, that you know, a creature like this might be the progenitor of all these sorts of things on some level, in, in and is representative of the ancient pre-human ex- creatures that existed and walked the earth before mankind. Yeah, there's a real sense here in this story that Lovecraft is thinking of some of the ideas that are going to show up in The Shadow Over Innsmouth as well, where we've got sea monsters, essentially, who are breeding with humans, who are uh, marrying humans and having babies with them who look human for a while, but then suddenly feel this compulsion to go to the sea because it turns out that they're they're actually, you know, sea 
monsters themselves as well. I hope I'm not spoiling that story for anyone, but presumably if you're listening to this show, uh, you know that story. It's one of Lovecraft's most famous ones because I have a real sense that something like something similar to that is going on here because we get the compulsion. This The narrator clearly, though, is human or at least thinks that he is and that even might be part of the fear that he has here is that uh, he sees that these ancestors are maybe not quite as human as he is and there is also then this bit of the necronomicon it's really emphasizing the things that have learned to walk that ought to crawl and then all of the the snake vocabulary and i have to imagine that that means something that that's relevant to who these people are that this isn't just lovecraft kind of picking a motif and using it because it sounds cool but i think there's some actual substance to that motif but precisely because we're getting it in these these two different ways but i think this is a good way for us to start to think about the history of this community that we encounter here in kingsport of course you know kingsport is this place that Lovecraft has in mind here as being an actual, honest-to-goodness English colonial settlement of the the 17th century, but that there's something else going on, you know, sort of a secret history of that colony as well. And he tells us here that the the, the people of the, the narrator, his ancestors, he says that they were old before the land was settled. So what does he mean by that? I mean, he's saying that these people were here before Europeans arrived. Is, is that how you take that? That is exactly how I take it. Yeah, I think he's saying that these people were here prior to the, you know, the blue-eyed fishermen who showed up, who taught them the language, and that that can only mean, yeah, early English settlers. Uh, so I I think he's really thinking about American history here. He says three hundred years. So I think he's really thinking about the people who arrived in the early seventeenth uh, century. Yeah, I mean, this is some Plymouth Rock stuff here. But this, though, then brings up other questions that I have, right? So even if we're thinking that maybe these are Native Americans we're talking about rather than some kind of monster creature that eventually breeds with humans and fits in or has some kind of weird shape-shifting ability, something like that, none of that's totally clear here in the story. But even if but in either case, right, if we're thinking that they're some kind of monster or they're just Native Americans— why do these people care so much about the Necronomicon and all these other old world texts, right? Shouldn't they have their own texts and, and certainly their own sacred text if what we're seeing here is the continuation of this ritual, this festival, this Yule festival, this midwinter festival that predates European arrival here? Shouldn't they have their own books, their own texts? Why do they have all these European ones? I mean, that's a fantastic question. I, I don't know if Lovecraft really thought super deeply about this as he was writing this story. I think, you know, he's really just trying to evoke a sense of the strange and forbidden in the presentation or the uh, presence of these texts in this story. And so if the Necronomicon, I think we could, and so I think we can look at the Necronomicon here in particular, which is this text that sort of is a a revelation, a discovery of these ancient ways and practices. And so that that one doesn't feel so out of place to me. But it's clear that even in this story, within the text, that these old ones, if they're pre-human or Native Americans or whatever they are, have assimilated with the early settlers and have either become human or retained some odd uh, magic of their original nature. And so maybe the Necronomicon is is a sacred and important text to them because it's one that one that revealed and allowed them to rediscover their heritage and that's why they can use it for such dark purposes um because these things ought to have been forgotten, you know, these these are things that people should not know of. Um but these people had it in their tradition. And maybe this is a text that revealed and, and clarified some of their tradition for them. Well, and this is really the last topic that I wanted us to cover, but I want to bring into the, our discussion here something that we do have in the explanatory notes in this Penguin Classic edition. Of course, these are done up by you know the, the, the most famous uh, Lovecraft scholar there is, S.T. Joshi, who points to a, a, le- a letter that Lovecraft wrote in which he, he talks about this story. And he says that this is what he had in mind. And I'm just reading from Lovecraft here. He says, in intimating an alien race, I had in mind the survival of some clan of pre-Aryan sorcerers who preserved primitive rites like those of the witch cult. I had just been reading Miss Murray's The Witch Cult in Western Europe. And 
you know, this is a book that actually ends up being explicitly mentioned in uh, The Call of Cthulhu, and I think maybe even some other stories by Lovecraft, and of course is, is famous uh, for other reasons as well. But this is this uh, this book from 1921 by Margaret Murray. It's yeah, it's called The Witch Cult in Western Europe. And she argued that early modern witches, witches of you know, the, the, the 17th century, we can think of the Salem witch trials here, uh, and also all of the, the witchcraft stuff going on in, in England and elsewhere in Europe in the 17th century as well, that those were really actually simply the surviving practitioners of a religion that predated the arrival even of Indo-Europeans into Europe, that it's a, a religion that's you know tens of thousands of, of years old, and that these are simply the, the continuation of these type of these types of rituals. I don't think that there's any scholar who takes that idea seriously today, but it was pretty sensational when she published this book at the time. And you can see where this is certainly a lot of fodder for great weird fiction stories. But it does seem that Lovecraft is confirming exactly what we've kind of teased out of the story, that he has in mind that these are are people, and I think he actually does think that they're humans. I think, he, and I think that he does actually mean for them to be humans here, but that they are Native Americans of some sort. So I am just puzzled by why he doesn't do the sort of trick that a fantasy writer would do, which is imbue them with their own languages and and traditions and uh, their own sacred text and so on. Yeah, I mean, I really think one of the one of the reasons why that why Lovecraft really didn't. Uh, you know, imbue these people with their own uh, religion and traditions and language and all and all of those sort of great anthropological uh, notions is that he's just writing so fast. He he is writing a lot, and we even brought up throughout this episode how this story sort of has a lot in common with Shadow over Innsmouth, and I think he he's writing and publishing and working out ideas as he's writing and sort of some of the things that people who came after Lovecraft were able to do were really to sharpen the image in a way that Lovecraft was just too in it to do at the time. And so I think it's just really for practical concerns is why we don't always see in Lovecraft the things that we want to. And and so on that note, I think that that'll do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the festival. And let us know uh, what you think Lovecraft has in mind with the witch cults and all of these sorts of strange things he brings out and explores in this story. If you'd like to vote in our bi-monthly polls to choose what stories we're covering on the show, please do check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media. There are dozens of bonus episodes there, too. In fact, I think really at this point, there are more Patreon episodes than there are Elder Sign episodes. And next time, two weeks, we're going to be back with our 2019 retrospective. Uh, we're going to pick some favorites. We're going to pick some least favorites as well, probably bicker about our opinions. And we're going to identify some of the, the common themes and motifs that we saw in the story that we read this year and we'll also look ahead to what's in store for 2020 but until then we greet you and say farewell <laughs>